Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Okay, let's talk about the beasts. I know that's why you're here. Thanks for reading that passage. I want to say, actually, this isn't potentially that weird. Many kids grew up reading Animal Farm, where the animals represented different characters or a collection of different characters from the Soviet state. It was a satire against Stalin. It was a clever way of writing that kind of undermined and said quite vicious stuff, um, but in a sort of subtle, slightly cryptic way. And it could be understood by those who had ears to hear and eyes to see kind of thing. Well, that's a lot of what's going on. This kind of writing is called apocalyptic literature. It's a bit like peeling back the skin and revealing the weird looking flesh and organs underneath. It's pulling back the veil of uh, what we can see and seeing heaven realities playing out. It also picks up on commonly known, either from the culture at the time or from having read the Old Testament Commonly known images, symbols, themes, bringing them together in this amazing mosaic uh, picture. Now, what are these beasts or who are these beasts? Actually, most commentators, especially the ones that I've been reading, um, tend to all agree, actually. It's not that uh, difficult. Um, There's details. Obviously, there are details. And in our life groups, I'm going to try and produce something that will help us look into things a little bit more detailed during the week. But... At the moment, there's surface level things that nearly everyone seems to agree on. And what are these beasts that are emerging out of the sea? Well, they are different kings and kingdoms. The first is a winged lion, and this is undoubtedly Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. As you walked into Babylon, there were murals on the walls of winged lions Nebuchadnezzar, when he tries to fly too close to the sun, when he tries to lift himself up in his pride, God humbles him, sends him out into a field, and he kind of becomes a fairy feathered beast, a bit like a winged lion. But then he's raised up and given a sort of new heart, a new start, and uh, is, we think, probably converted in that moment. So the winged lion that is the first kingdom surely represents Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Then there's a lopsided bear with ribs, nice barbecue ribs in its mouth. This is almost certainly the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a combined empire, but the Persians became a lot more powerful. That's kind of the stories of Esther and Nehemiah and those kinds of stories in the Old Testament. So it becomes lopsided in that fashion. It then gets taken over by this speedy leopard that flies across the earth alexander the great took over the known world faster than almost anyone in history and after he died he passed over his kingdom to four different empires we've got a leopard which in the bible is known for moving extremely fast with four heads four wings the rest of daniel tells the story often of the greek empire um, that was to come And then this final beast, which Daniel doesn't quite know what animal to describe it as, but gives us a description of all sorts of appendages and various elements to it. This is almost certainly at least the Roman Empire, and it might represent further empires and a lot more than that, but at least the Roman Empire. 
Because essentially what Daniel is seeing in this vision are the four kingdoms that are going to rule over and house God's people for the foreseeable future until God's kingdom succeeds and is victorious and then expands to fill the earth. But these are going to be the nations that rule over God's people. And the positive note, the in summary principle idea, big picture idea is essentially this. God is promising to preserve his people, those who are faithful to him, through the fire and the flames, through the tests and the trials, through the lion's dens of the future. God will bring them out the other side into a more glorious reality and a glorious future. But that's not the end of the beastly imagery and it's worth us going back even more and I think Daniel does this. At the beginning of his vision he sees a watery dark chaos with a wind or a spirit, same word, hovering over the surface. If you've read Genesis chapter 1 you know that is the image of the beginning of creation. And then in Genesis, out of the sea emerges land, which has loads of potential and was meant to be ruled over by human beings. But what we're seeing now are land beasts, but weird hybrids that feel like they've been in a uh, scientist lab for too long. But land beasts with appendages emerging out of the sea and ruling over the land in different ways. This takes us back to the dramatic plot twist that happened at the beginning of the bible god created mankind men and women out of the same stuff as the animals but then he raised them up to a higher status he gave them permission and power and responsibility to rule over the beasts the animals and the whole of the earth to care for to look after to be responsible for everything in creation but to be the rulers to rule over the beasts. But the dramatic plot twist is Genesis chapter 3, when one of the beasts that they've named, the snake, comes back into the garden and tricks them into obeying it, a creature, rather than obeying their creator. And in that moment, they choose to be ruled over by a beast and they fall from the glory, they fall from the honour that God had given them as the right rulers of the earth and they are thrown out of the garden into the wilderness with their tails between their legs looking like beasts they were dressed in animal skins as they leave the garden the next story is of Cain their son feeling envious feeling enraged and desiring to kill his brother for um, something that's explained And God says to Cain, look, Cain, there's something called sin that is crouching like an animal, wanting to pounce on you and rule over you. Resist it. Don't give in. But what does Cain do? He does. He lets the beast rule over him and he murders his own brother in cold blood. Then Cain starts to establish beastly A beastly community which just gets worse and worse and worse and human beings fall from glory further and further. 
Now, modern psychologists and sociologists actually describe human beings in this way, or some of them do. Jonathan Haidt wrote a best-selling book called The Righteous Mind, explaining why human beings make the decisions that they do. And he says he describes us as a bit like a rider, a conscious rider who sort of is the thinking part of us, riding on top of this lumbering elephant that is our deep desires, our lusts, um, our sort of deep emotions. And actually, we are mostly driven by the elephant. The rider makes a few conscious decisions and we like to think that the rider's in charge. But actually, the lusts, the appetites of this elephant are really the thing that control us through life. Um, a famous sports psychologist called Steve Peters, who has trained some of the best Olympians and sports people over the years, teaches them to train their inner chimp in order to be able to succeed. What they're picking up on is that there is a beastly nature inside of all of us. But how they're describing it is sort of as a neutral or natural element rather than as something dangerous, something sinful. And the reason is, I think, is that they their worldview, I'm not sure necessarily exactly what they believe, but generally the modern worldview views human beings as much less than what the Bible describes us as. The Bible makes very clear that human beings were created to be able to rule over the beasts and actually to act in this way is a is a demonstration of our fallenness of our sinfulness the fact that we are separated from god it's an example of our shame and our degradation it's not morally neutral it's morally wrong and it's really the cause of so much destruction in this world i was looking at how the beasts behave how Daniel describes them. We're told they frighten, they trample, they consume. Now I read this article about an event that happened on Black Friday in 2008. A crowd of approximately 2,000 shoppers in Valley Stream, New York, supposedly one of the most progressive, developed, humane societies, waited outside for the 5am opening of the local Walmart. As opening time approached, the crowd grew anxious And when the doors were opened, the crowd pushed forward, breaking the door down, and a 34-year-old employee was trampled to death. Now let's just take consumerism. I was always thinking consumerism describes the fact that we like to consume stuff, but actually the reality is consumerism consumes us. It has a power over people. Uh, causes them to act in ways that are beastly, that are less than human these beasts also grind down they shatter they crush they're described the final one is like iron it has iron teeth in daniel chapter 2 which describes a similar progression iron legs iron seems impenetrable it feels like nothing's going to change it is rigid and solid And you so often hear people describing their existence in this world. They feel like their life has been kicked out of them. I feel shattered, people say. I feel ground down by the world that I'm in. I'm crushed. I don't see the future getting any better. It's like iron, impenetrable. It will not change. Now, it's not necessarily sinful to feel this way. 
what it's illuminating is the fact that these beastly systems, these beastly structures, these kingdoms exist all around us. But this is not what God's kingdom is like. I'm going to head towards that. But you need to hear that. This is not what God's kingdom is like. Jesus said very clearly, come to me all who are um, heavy laden and wearied by the systems that the religious people of their day had put in place. Come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will not crush you down in this same way. That's not the kingdom of God. So it's not necessarily sinful to feel this way, but what is sinful is to participate in these system structures, practices. To participate in this is just to allow the beastly side of us to rule over us. Our lusts, our desires to drive our decision making, our behaviours, our ways of thinking or being. And if we're honest, we wouldn't like to admit it, but all of us are guilty of allowing the beastly nature of us to take over at different times even Pinocchio was guilty of this I watched back some of these scenes of Pinocchio and you realize how dark some of Disney really is but it's quite a graphic description this moment when Pinocchio throws off his conscience Jiminy Cricket poor old Jiminy and he goes to Pleasure Island to find all the different things that naughty boys want to do And he's allowed to smoke, he's allowed to drink and play pool. I don't know why that was described as an evil. But then there's that horrifying moment when he sees his friends start to transform into a donkey, a beast of burden. And what Jiminy Cricket discovers elsewhere is that the slave drivers of Pleasure Island, they're luring people in with all of these things that will drive our appetites. But as we give in to these lusts, we start to transform as a spell over the island. They start to become slaves to the system and become beasts that then get used to uh, propagate and continue the systems and the structures that are in place. It's a dramatic image. I think there's two issues, but I think it's very clever. But the two issues, firstly, Well, the Bible at least says, Jesus was very clear, no one starts life as an innocent little boy. And then some just take the wrong, make the wrong choices and end up as beastly. But the rest of us are just innocent and good and more or less is described, isn't it? Extremely intellectual people will say humans are more or less good. That's not the description that Jesus, the most influential thinker possibly of human history, Uh, has suggested humans start out as evil jesus made clear the second thing i think is just the socially conservative message of pinocchio that the real evils are smoking and drinking well if we take the book of daniel really the real evils that cause this crushing trampling ultimate destruction are things like following your selfish ambition or allowing pride to take over Now, these two things are largely applauded in today's society. That's how people become successful. But not in God's kingdom. Now, let's talk about the little horn. I'm just going to say whoever or whatever the little horn represents. I think it's probably multiple characters uh, sort of almost uh, blended together over history as you look into the future, as Daniel's looking into the future. Um, 
we're not necessarily sure. In life groups, like I've said, we will uh, we can elaborate on some of these details. But essentially, we know what the little horn is doing. We know the tune that the little horn is playing. We know the kind of stuff it's saying. It's a bit like the Pied Piper charming the rats, causing them playing the right tune to it, cause them to dance in a certain way. That's what goes on in this world as the little horns of this world play certain tunes and people dance along with them. Now this might look like a rabid dictator of a nation ordering or allowing the massacre of thousands of Christians which is happening around the world at the moment. But it also might look like a gentle, docile, elderly woman telling her grandchild that Really, when she dies, it's not a bad thing because we all just enter back into nature and it's all part of the same system. And hey, it's a good thing. And I'll be with you always. Telling the child, don't worry, there's nothing after death. Or it might be a teenager in their room trolling people online for what they believe, insulting them, belittling them from the safety of their own bedroom. Or it might be university, scholars, lecturers, ethics panels getting their heads together and deciding or defining what a human life actually is, what a human is, and what a human is worth. All these things, all these different behaviours are all essentially dancing to the same anti-God truth. The Bible's not relevant anymore. Humans are in charge. Humans know what is best. It's an anti-Christ message. It ignores the idea of God being the ruler over us and of being our creator. And it's essentially coming up with our own systems. It's ultimately dancing to the tune of the beast or dancing to the tune that gets the beast moving. And so, like I said, Daniel sees the future, but he doesn't see this glorious future where human beings are just getting better and better eventually over time. He's seeing one beast transform into another beast, being destroyed by another beast. And ultimately, these beasts slowly getting even more horrific and deadly because they're getting further and further divorced from God. They're removing him from the equation even more. And they're moving further and further, descending further from God, apart from one who is going in the opposite direction, up to the Ancient of Days. And that's where we get the scene switch. While the little horn is blowing his own trumpet, we get a scene cut, thankfully, to an altogether more glorious and wonderful scene of heaven. Something far more holy and splendorous. We see a prediction of an appointed time where God ultimately puts down the beasts and raises up a new true humanity led by one individual human described as a son of man. Now, if you've read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, you will know that this was his favourite way of describing himself. Some suggest that it's just a way of saying that I am human. But most people actually don't think that that's the case. Because 
well, especially if you take Daniel chapter 7 as a background. But it's also the difference between if I introduce myself to you as a man, I am a man, you'd think nothing of it. But if I introduce myself as I am the man, then you'd start to question uh, what on earth I was getting at, what I was saying. Uh, the Killers made an amazing song called The Man, uh, and it's describing these people who elevate themselves up, calling themselves, thinking that they are the man in the world, and ultimately coming to nothing. Well, essentially, that's what Jesus was doing. In front of the Jewish rulers of the day, he would call himself the Son of Man, with Daniel chapter 7 in the background. Now, what's happening in the scene the scene of Daniel chapter 7 is of a human surrounded by clouds in the same way that God was always surrounded by clouds in the Old Testament. Going up into the presence of the epicentre of all existence, the Ancient of Days, God the Father himself. Moving up into God's presence, this man, this human, has the right to be in his presence, but not just that. He is then given the seat at the right hand of God, which is symbolic from Psalm 110 and others of having the right to rule over the whole of creation, the ultimate ruler. And his kingdom would then expand across the whole earth. This is the ultimate human given ultimate responsibility over everything in existence. At the moment, there's a lot being said about being on the right side of history. Daniel chapter 7 is all about being on the right side of the future. Ultimately, backing the right horse, if I could say it like that. Being on the right side of this son of man character. Now you can understand why it was so controversial that the Jewish rulers who thought that they represented God on earth were finding themselves facing off against someone describing themselves as the son of man that's why they crucified him which takes me to this final question why was daniel so troubled by what he saw surely he should be encouraged he's seen this glorious future of the son of man going up into heaven but he's troubled i think because he's seeing reality on the ground he's seeing the future suffering of god's people now daniel had suffered in various different ways but God had brought him out of all of those sufferings but what he's seeing in the future is altogether more horrific for God's people now one example of that is a guy called Stephen a Greek speaking Jew who we come across in Acts chapter 6 an early follower of Jesus who committed his life to Jesus and he was making it his life goal to try and bring the kingdom of God, this heavenly reality, down to earth and try and see the rule of God on earth. Healing people, serving people, looking after communities in different ways. And in doing all of this, he comes up against opposition from his own brothers or cousins or at least kinfolk. The Jews who were in the synagogues start to oppose him and tell him to stop. They haul him in front of the Sanhedrin, the same people that Jesus had been pulled in front of. And then, like Jesus, a whole crowd of false witnesses were brought in to accuse him of preaching blasphemy. Exactly the thing that the little horn is spoken about doing in Daniel chapter 7. 
They accuse him of blasphemy. So he justifies himself. He explains throughout the whole of the Old Testament how all of the prophets had spoken about someone to come who would suffer, but then would be raised up and sent into God's presence. Daniel says the son of man, but in other terms, it's called the righteous one. And that's the phrase that um, Stephen uses, that Jesus is the righteous one, the upright human being. The human being with the right to be in the presence of God and the human being with the right to sit at the right hand of God, the father and rule over all things. Stephen is saying this Jewish carpenter who became a kind of prophet figure, who gathered a bit of a crowd that you then crucified. God raised him up three days later to resurrection life. And now he's at the right hand of God, the father. And as he's saying all of this, he sees the beastly nature of human beings, these highly respectable individuals who led Israel at the time, the Jews at the time, suddenly start to become enraged. And it says they gnash their teeth at him like Dennis the Menace's little dog, gnashing their teeth at him and they become furious. And to make it worse, he looks up and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this was essentially the straw that broke the camel's back. Suddenly these leaders, these Sanhedrin, start howling as a group like a wolf pack. And they rush upon Stephen. Luke uses the same word that he used in his gospel to describe a herd of pigs being possessed by demons and rushing into the sea. They're howling and they're rushing upon him. And in this beastly way, they drag him outside, stone him to death and kill him. Reminding us of Cain killing his brother Abel at the beginning of the Bible, letting the beast take over. Now, Daniel has been looking into the future and he is disturbed because he's seeing the persecution of God's people. When God's kingdom goes into the world... It provokes the beast to wake up and lash out in horrifying ways. While I was preparing for this sermon, I just read this tweet. This week, dozens of Christians have been slaughtered by Islamic militants in Burkina Faso and Nigeria. A teenage boy was chopped into pieces by Hindu fundamentalists in India for professing Christ. Nine men were jailed in Iran for preaching. Their pastor was already in jail for the same offence. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That should be our prayer. And in fact, that will be our prayer on Friday. And we'd invite you to join us. Praying for the persecuted church all around the world who are suffering such atrocities as the beast lashes out and tries to put a stop to God's kingdom. Now, how should we respond? Well, we respond. I I love this phrase from Johann Becker. He says we should live with great impatience and patient endurance. Great impatience at the injustices of this world. 
of everything that stands against God, all of the beastly activity that crushes people. We shouldn't just sit back and think, well, if I'm comfortable, that's fine. Or, hey, this is just how things are going to be. No, we should pursue God's kingdom. And when we face opposition, when it feels like we're coming up against iron teeth, when we feel trampled down, when we feel like it's wearied and tired out, that's when we call on God again for patient endurance for us and for our brothers and sisters all around the world who are going through this. I think the thing that allowed Stephen to keep going until the very end, the thing that will drive us as driven Christians through the centuries to continue to pursue justice and to preach the gospel and to see God's kingdom come is to see this glorious future. As Stephen looked up and saw the heavenly throne room opened, he not only saw Jesus taking his throne, but he saw another throne with his name engraved on it. Now, I was a relatively precocious child. I know you can't believe it, but I was occasionally. And I found museums and galleries incredibly boring. So when we went on a school trip around a castle or something, I think, we got to a throne room and I was knackered and bored. So I thought, I'll stuff it. And I just stepped over the red rope and uh, went and sat down on one of the thrones. Now, unsurprisingly, within a few minutes, one of the teachers or stewards saw me and shouted, get off that chair, that's not yours, and told me to get back over the red rope. Well, I think this passage is telling us the exact opposite. It's saying, get on that chair. It's saying, join me. Jesus is inviting us into this ridiculous reality because first it was the son of man being exalted as the rightful ruler of all things. And no other human being deserves to be in God's presence in that way. But through Jesus's death and resurrection life and now ascension, we are invited to step over the red rope and sit next to him. He's essentially saying, please be seated. Come, join me in ruling the world it sounds precocious but it's here in the bible i'll I'll show you it there's an amazing passage in ephesians chapter 2 where paul seems to summarize all of what we've just been talking about in one passage he says this i'll finish with this and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world or the tune dancing to the tune of this world Following the prince of the power of the air, the animating force, that that snake-like character in the garden, tempting us to be ruled over by the beast, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, being ruled over by the beastly nature, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, the lusts of our, our, our flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath. We're not born as innocent Pinocchio children. We're born as uh, by nature children of wrath, separated from God, fallen from glory like the rest of mankind. No one is exempt from this. This is equalising. Everyone is under this judgment. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even while we were gnashing our teeth at him, made us alive together with Christ. He broke into history. He broke into the future. And he 
in his resurrection makes us alive, anyone who trusts in him. By grace you've been saved. Remember that this is not due to your virtue. It's not due to humans evolving and getting better. By grace you have been saved. It's a gift of God and raised up with him. And here's the precocious bit and seated us with him in the heavenly places, that heavenly throne room in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus as all tongues, as all ethnicities, as all tribes gather together in God's throne room with our names engraved on the different thrones that he's given us, praising the true son of man as he rules over this world. He's inviting us now to join him in that. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you as the ancient of days, your authority over all things. We come before you because we can through your son Jesus and we praise him, the son of man raised up to ultimate status, the rightful ruler over this whole world. And we pray your kingdom come. Lord, in our midst and around the world, give us this great impatience to not sit back, but to stand for justice in every area, to continue to preach the gospel and do it with patient endurance, Lord. Please help us by your spirit to keep going, to press on and to know that ultimately through the fire and the flames, you are bringing us to this glorious future. And I pray for anyone who's been watching this, Lords, that you would give them the courage to take a step over that red rope and take their seat in the throne room, the seat that you have won for them, the seat that you have reserved for them. Lord, I pray that you would establish more and more of your rule in us and through us in this coming week, coming years and into eternity. In Jesus' name we pray as we praise him now. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.